Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to, hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. As longtime listeners of this podcast will know, the intersection of gambling and tennis is a topic that has always fascinated me. And of course, I say that knowing that this Great Shot Podcast is brought to you by our friends at DraftKings, who we here at Cracked Rackets know is the premier sports gambling book across the world. Uh, But even beyond that, I do think gambling in tennis offers a way for fans to get into the sport that just isn't available in other leagues, in other professional sports, because simply put, when it's full steam ahead, when there's not a global pandemic going on, tennis is the only sport that is taking place 24-7, you know, 11 months out of the year across the globe, different levels of events, and there are so many different ways fans can get in on the action, right? Point by point, game spread, set by set, of course, money lines, spreads, all of the usual games gambling terms as well, the usual things you can do in other sports. Tennis provides that and more. And of course, for those of you who are familiar with the financial side of the sport, you're also aware that it's a huge revenue stream that just hasn't been fully tapped by the ATP, by the WTA, and it's one that certainly is available to them. And given that we are, again, in the midst of a global pandemic, it's a question wondering, you know, we're all wondering about where are big revenue streams going to come from? come from for so many tournaments and, you know, not the Grand Slams, not really the Masters events, but, you know, the 250 level, the 500 level, of course, the ITF World Tour. Uh, Where are those tournaments going to get the funding, the sort of sponsorship backing to host events, particularly if we're not going to have fans at these events for the foreseeable future? And so, you know, that's why it immediately caught my attention, as it so often does, when my friend at Sports Business Journal, Brett McCormick, released his article talking about the intersection of gambling and tennis, talking about you know the huge revenue stream available for professional tennis should they choose to take that route. And of course, it's why we are thrilled to be joined by Brett on the podcast today to explore this very topic, talk about the history of sports gambling, the data associated with it, and professional tennis, talk about you know the formation of the Tennis Integrity Unit, which is the regulatory body, which is supposed to monitor the integrity of the game, ensure there aren't professional players throwing matches, ensuring, you know, nothing nefarious, nothing mischievous is happening given uh, the relationship, you know, given what's possible uh, for those gamblers out on tour. And of course, there have been notable examples throughout tennis history of players throwing matches. There have also been many unfounded accusations, but certainly if you look closely enough, patterns of players who have been accused of throwing matches now never substantially 
substantiated those claims, but it's rumors that have existed, particularly if you follow, you know, the lower levels, the 10K, 25K events, you know, even into the 50 and 100Ks as well. Uh, It's a prevalent topic, and it's always a fascinating one. It's one that I saw come up on tennis Twitter as well, a conversation between Sven Grunfeld, Renee Stubbs, and, you know, of course, whenever you get two of tennis's greatest minds intrigued on a topic, you know it's going to catch my attention as well. Uh, But of course, it was just great to get Brett on the show today again to talk about that relationship between gambling and tennis and where both he thinks and, you know, in general what we think uh, the future looks like for that relationship. So it's a really fun conversation. I'm really looking forward to all of you listeners hearing it. Of course, I wanted to have this conversation prior to all of the hoopla getting underway in New York. Cincinnati qualifying already starting that main draw for Cincinnati qualifying. Excuse me, Western and Southern qualifying already starting that event's main draw getting ready to go at the beginning of next. Next week, And of course, we're going to be focused on that, on previewing all of the action in New York, the U.S. Open directly following it. You know, that's going to be the focus of the mini break of the Great Shot podcast. You already heard part one with Ben Rothenberg, part two coming up of that podcast later next or early next week. So be on the lookout for that. You know, it's going to be all gears shifted towards New York once that three week stretch starts. But this is a fascinating conversation. I know all of you listeners will be intrigued with as well. A little bit of thinking for your weekend, right? Something fun to pop in in case you're going on a run or going to pick up groceries, whatever it is you do to fill your pre-tennis starting weekends, because as we all know, these next three weeks are going to be consumed uh, by tennis. So any grocery shopping you have to do, any family members who hopefully you can see because you've been safely self-quarantining, safely social distancing, uh, get that out of the way this weekend because it's going to be your last time for a while, tennis fans. It's going to be all tennis all the time coming up soon. And I know after a five-month hiatus, that's something we all can look forward to. Of course, the reason we are able to do these pods day in, day out, something I always look forward to is because our relationship that we have from and the support we get from our friends at DraftKings, and I've already mentioned it, tennis, the only sport that happens 24-7, 365. We know our Cracked Rackets fans are the most informed, the best educated tennis fans in the business. Why not take advantage of that fact and why not do it with our friends at DraftKings? Here's how it works. You're going to go to DraftKings. DraftKings.com, create your DraftKings Sportsbook account and make a deposit. DraftKings will match your first deposit at 20% up to $5,000. From there, you're going to make your first bet. DraftKings is also going to match that with a risk-free first bet up to $500. And in case you haven't taken advantage of this offer yet, keep in mind, Cincinnati's coming up, folks. U.S. Open's coming up. It's all of our favorite pro players back on court. So many matches throughout the course of these next three weeks. Let's take advantage of that fact. Let's make a little money together and you can do it by going to dkng.co slash great shot to play. That's dkng.co slash great shot. Deposit bonus is in DK dollars, which have no cash value and must be used on site. Offer not valid for users physically located in New Hampshire. Eligibility restrictions apply. You must be 21 years or older and in New Jersey, Indiana, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, or Iowa. See draftkings.com slash sportsbook 
for more details. But again, just go to dkng.co slash great shot to play gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, West Virginia, or Pennsylvania, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, or 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa only. And by the way, some of you might be thinking, what happened to DraftKings Ace of the Day? Rest assured, folks, it is not going anywhere. We just wanted to take a brief hiatus. We didn't want to get you, you know, we wanted to resettle the ship. I wanted to do my research that I could come out swinging for the time that Cincinnati and the U.S. Open started. And I will already say on the DraftBooks Tennis Sportsbook account, you can already get in on all the qualifying action. You can already also, you know, there's still a couple of EXO events here and there. There are a couple of challengers going on this week too, but you can start looking at long shot odds, folks, and you look for Cincy. And to be honest, the Cincy odds make more sense to me right now than the U.S. Open do, uh, ones do. You look at the favorites, it's Sophia Kennan at plus 550, Carolina Pliskova plus 600. Those are both great odds, by the way. The players I write like right now, people like as well, you know, Kvitova plus 700. I think Serena plus 600 is way too high. Evidently, DraftKings has not forgotten that Elena Rybakina is really, really good in 2020. They have her plus 1,000. Arena Sapolenka, someone who you're going to hear my thoughts on in part two with Ben Rothenberg, plus 3,000. Jennifer Brady, plus 3,300. You know, I think these people are listening to the podcast because they've got Conteve, plus 3,000. Uh, Coco Golf plus 3,300. Yastremska, who you guys know I love, plus 3,300. It's a wide open field, folks. I mean, the fact that the biggest favorite is plus 550, I think that speaks to the uncertainty surrounding the WTA Tour right now. And then you look at the U.S. Open. Serena's the favorite right now at plus 333. You're sinking your money if you're making that bet. I'm sorry, folks. I just don't think it's going to happen in this one. But Naomi Osaka, plus 600, interesting. Pliskova, plus 1,000. You think to yourself, okay, if it was going to happen for Carolina Pliskova, maybe these are the extraordinary circumstances you need in order for it to happen. But I'll tell you what. If you play this U.S. Open 12 times, I guarantee you Sophia Kennan's coming out with a title in at least more than one of them. She's plus 1,200 right now. 12 to 1 odds. Tasty, folks. Tasty. Kvitova at 1,200 right now. You bet on both of them. One of them wins. You have my attention, folks. You absolutely have my attention. Of course, we will get into these odds in more depth as we get closer to the event, but it's only fitting that we're talking DraftKings odds because, again, the focus of today's conversation, the future intersection between tennis and gambling, what that is going to look like. And, of course, there's no person you would rather talk about that subject with than Sports Business Journal's Brett McCormick. So, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with returning Cracked Rackets champion and Sports Business Journal's Brett McCormick. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
Joining us on the podcast today is a returning champion here on our Cracked Racket shows, and that, of course, is because no one in the tennis media industry has a better grasp of what is happening in the business world of tennis than today's guest. You, of course, know him as a writer for the Sports Business Journal. Brett McCormick, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, just kind of excited to see what happens <laughs> these next few weeks, um, uh, especially with tennis. Oh, absolutely. And you know this. I mentioned it before we started. Anytime you write anything, I am glued to it. It's an immediate click. It's an immediate, okay, I'm spending my next five minutes rereading this three times so I can fully digest it uh, because we always, as tennis fans, appreciate a look at the inside of the financial side of the tennis world, particularly in the midst of a global pandemic when we are all wondering how this global pandemic is going to affect our beloved sport. But I feel bad because I never explore Brett McCormick, the tennis fan side. So let's just start off with a quick fun question. You mentioned it. Three weeks in New York coming up. As a fan, are you concerned about the bubble? Are you more excited to see your favorite pros return? I'm asking this to all of our guests, but how are you feeling about this upcoming stretch? I think that uh, what happened in 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 Serbia and Croatia will have hopefully kind of um, scared everybody into um, cooperation. And I, <laughs> I, I think that'll be the case. You may have like an outlier or two, but I, I really think that all of them understand the effort that went into this. And, and I do think there will be good compliance in that regard. And like, you know, saying compliance makes it sound like, you know, you're being a, a wimp or your or whatever but like I, this is just this is just not the time to you know buck buck the rules or whatever so I, I i think the tournament will go off fine i mean uh this is um a usda event and so they've got the resources to really make sure something like this is going to go well i you know i think after that it could be interesting in europe you know where you're gonna have some different levels of tournaments and different levels of investment and uh resources but I don't see the USTA having any problems as long as uh, the players really kind of take care of themselves, which I, you know, I think they're, I think they're going to, I mean, if anybody, you know, the the field's going to dwindle as it gets further into, um, you know, the second week. And so that would be when you might get like a little um, cabin fever. But I mean, I think by that point, people will be so locked into what they, can accomplish, you know, that, that I, I think they'll be focused on what they need to do. Um, and then really with the couple of people that have rented houses, you know, I, I, I don't worry about them at all because for one, I don't think Novak will ever, I wouldn't say, let me take out ever. I don't think Novak would do anything, um, you know, to, to hurt his image even further this year, you know, and, and then also the fact that they're having to share like ride navigation when they get in the car. Uh, you know, I, I think they've got it pretty buttoned up. So, and of course, I'm sure you saw the signs uh, that were posted at the edge of the parking lots of the hotels that, that basically reminded players to back up, <laughs> turn around, <laughs> you know, think twice, still do it, uh, go back to your room, uh, you know, that were basically reminding players that they would be, uh, you know, removed from the tournament if they went beyond that barrier. So, um no, I, I don't think there would be any problems, and I think it'll be a cool and weird tournament, especially with them, you know, having the the seated players having suites, being able to use the suites in the uh, stadiums. I think that's kind of a funny and 
weird and interesting touch. Mm-hmm. So you said I'm, a cu- I'm excited to oh, see. Yeah. Yeah, no, you said a couple of things there that I think are very interesting. Number one, that just phrase, scared into compliance. You could argue the more direct phrase would be scared into submission, right? Hey, follow my rules or you are going to get kicked out of the tournament. You are going to get fined. You're going to be penalized heavily. We're not messing around right now. And justifiably so, I think you nailed it. What happened at the Adria Tour really set the tone for the rest of the events we saw throughout the exhibition series, uh, certainly through tennis's return how serious they were uh, in Lexington, at least stateside. I know in in uh, Palermo they were allowing fans. In Prague it was a minimal crowd, and that was a little bit weird. Obviously, there's too much on the line to do that here at this U.S. Open, and we've talked about the safety and health guidelines many a times on this podcast, so we don't have to get into that. But the other tidbit you dropped there, it's one we have discussed before, but I think you're going to be able to provide a little bit of depth here on this topic. You know, the the U.S. Open is a USTA event, but more importantly, it's a USTA event that actually generates revenue. You know, usually it's between, what, $250, $350 million it's generating as an event. That's obviously not going to be the case this year, but the U.S. Open is going ahead because it's still going to make money. It's going to be the thing that feeds everything else the USTA is trying to do. My question to you, Brett, is how many other tournaments do you think have the resources available to host this? sort of bubble because we saw success in world team tennis right and world team tennis more financially sound probably and you can again provide more depth to this than i would imagine your standard atp 250 or wta international event i think as from a financial model standpoint uh just they do a little bit better but i mean how many events truthfully have the resources to be able to create this sort of bubble and as we've seen in pro sports the nba the nhl they're working because because they were able to create bubbles. And if you want to you know, pick apart their bubbles, we can do that at a different time. But in general, they have worked. You continue to see 300-plus tests each day or week for the NBA, every test coming back negative. Same for the NHL. For the MLB, when they've had to travel from city to city you know, across the country, we've seen teams get in trouble. So what we're learning, if we want pro sports back, it seems the bubble model is going to have to be utilized. How many tournaments do you think can actually create that bubble that's a good question uh i would say okay like roland garros should have no problem with that um i'm looking at the tournaments uh you know and, and this is kind of me guessing I, I don't know right off the bat but i mean you could look at the uh, level of tournament and guess you know which ones are going to have an easier time of it i mean i would say you know masters 1000s uh grand slams premier premier fives are probably going to be okay um international 250 level is where you know i would um be a little more concerned and and part of part of that is because those tours are um not going to have as much uh financial clout or security i think that would make them more likely to try to have fans which i think creates more problems really if if you could just have an event without fans i think you'd have i think you'd have you lower your risk like considerably um so you, you know, I think the Russian events would be okay. Um, uh, I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. I mean, um, ATP finals will, will be fine. You know, but it sounds like no fans there. Um, but like the Sofia Open, you know, two fifty. I don't, I don't really know much about who owns that or, or um, the level of uh, the level of investment that's involved with it. Um, Antwerp, you know, is run by 
or has involvement of the guy that oversees the 250 um, commit the 250 tournament committee for the ATP. So, you know, I don't know if that means that he's got more, uh, you know, money to throw at testing, but I'm sure he has a firm understanding of, uh, you know, what they need to do. Um, Rome should be fine, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think it really depends on a couple of different things and, and really I think having, having fans or not having fans is a big part of that. And, uh, the, the, the need to do that. Now, I mean, Roland Garros, sounds like they're trying really hard to have fans um so i don't i don't know if that's a good good thing but um i think that's a big part of it you know how badly you need to have people outside of the players and the necessary tournament personnel how badly you need to have those other people inside the venue i think will will make a big difference um on how safely these are carried out yeah, no, I completely agree with you, and it's funny, oh, I suppose it's not funny, but you see the ITF uh, release their guidelines for these events, and so much of it is about, you know, just mitigating spread and limiting uh, exposure while on site. They can't do much to contain, you know, they yeah, can't create these right. bubbles because these tournaments just don't have the resources to do so. And so for right. so many tennis events, uh, it really will be just at the whim of an honor system, almost hoping these players act responsibly. And of course, they have an incentive to because they want to get back on tour. They want to go back, uh, you know, do their job jobs make some money for themselves and yet if we've learned anything about this disease it's that it doesn't respect the confines of people just trying to do their jobs it will find itself and intrude its way into your life whether you like it or not and so even if these tournaments are trying to mitigate the spread all it takes is one asymptomatic fan to show up or one asymptomatic tournament volunteer and these tournaments just don't have the resources to do the testing and so you know the fact that the U.S. Open and I talked about this with Ben Rothenberg um when we had him on the mini break podcast, sorry to drop that for you, Brett. That's just a, you know, subtle plug for our listeners in case they haven't listened to it yet. (laughs) Um, But, you know, he talked about the fact that when we learned someone arrived in New York and someone in the team, and we learned this member of the team, I believe if memory serves me correct, was it part of, it was two Argentinian players coach. I think it was Hugo Delian. Um, I don't remember who the other player was, um, but it Guido was Hugo Dillon and Guido Pea. Yes, exactly. You, you nailed. Yeah, and uh, those two there, I believe, what was it? Their nutritionist or their hitting coach or their physio, whatever it was. He was the person who tested positive. Now, those two players are, have had to pull out of Cincinnati and will be in isolation, I think, for it's two weeks. Although, you look at the date of when they were put in isolation. If they're in for two weeks, they won't be able to play the U.S. Open. We learned this morning that Novak Djokovic, some of the other players trying to petition to get them back in because they didn't test positive. It was just someone they were exposed to. Of course, if you're going to allow those players back in, that sort of compromises the whole purpose of the bubble. Yeah, yeah. Right. Never. Yeah, I was going to say, sorry, that wasn't my point, but go ahead. Yeah, it's just kind of all counterproductive. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it has to be rigid. You can't really, you, I mean, you can't bend the, the rules on this stuff. And, you know, to, um, for the ATP and WTA events, I mean, they're going to have the abilities to, they, they are, um, almost certain required to create kind of like a bubble like you saw in Lexington. Um, So it's just the level of that they're able to maintain. And, you know, so, uh, and that's where if you have players that are pushing for like private residences, you may not have um, the ability to track them as well as like the USDA and the U S open would. So that, that's where it, it gets a little bit different. And then also, like you said, having fans and, that are not connected to the tournament. I mean, that just increases the 
the danger like really greatly. Um, I, I don't know a number, but I mean, it just increases the likelihood that um, you're going to have issues. So um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think there will be, I think that everybody who sounded fine with the rules when it was talked about, but now you're seeing, you know, one of these kind of weird situations happen and it'd be interesting to see how um, firmly, you know, pro tennis uh, organizers can stick to their guns. Mm-hmm. No, and again, I think the fact that someone did test positive in New York would, had to have been expected, right? Just given the scale of sure, the event, yeah. given that it's an international thing, and the USTA had to be prepared. You know, Ben's point was that, yeah, this shows the testing works. This is exactly what yeah. the USTA had in mind. That being said, if they're just going to bend the rules immediately, it's like, what are we doing here? We're all setting ourselves up for failure, right? And so I just I think it's really interesting to see how it develops. Certainly, the USTA, again, has the regulations in place for exactly this situation. We will see uh, if they have the gumption, I suppose, to stick with the rigid interpretation of the rules and if the players will understand the circumstance, if they will, you know, again, because you're telling these players, hey, you came to New York and it's not your fault your trainer tested positive, but you've been exposed to your trainer. It's the safety of the collective tournament and that's just going to be a fascinating dichotomy is seeing how the players respond to that, you know, if they're going to be willing to collectively sacrifice, if, as we've already heard rumblings of, they're going to get together, you know, band together and see, you know, force these rules to be bent. And that's never a good thing. So I just think it, it's a really interesting uh, point we are at. Any any final thoughts on that topic? No, not really. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, I, I just think it, it's, uh, you gotta, the rules are the rules and you gotta, yeah. you know, they're, they're, you have to kind of give it up for the greater good in this case. I mean, it, it, it definitely would suck for those two players, but I mean, I, I hate this phrase, but it is what it is. They're, you know, like they're, It's the rules and you have to go by the rules so, or else this doesn't no. work. Exactly. It's like, hey, we're all sacrificing to make this happen. There's going to be some pain on everyone's side. I completely agree with you there. But that is not the reason I had you on the podcast today. I had you on to talk about a bigger piece you wrote. I will say one last U.S. Open thing. The fact that they took on Body Armor as a sponsor. The fact that they took out a new insurance policy. Both things you wrote about in Sports Business Journal. You know, the Body Armor thing, that's that's a little bit more minimal, right? Uh, The U.S. Open at this point, they'll take any sponsor they can get. But in terms of the new insurance policy, can you talk about that to our listeners? It's a sponsorship, not a uh, not a policy. So they don't okay. they don't have insurance. Actually, like nobody can get. Um, oh, insurance sponsor. Excuse me. Yes. It's a sponsor. Yeah, nobody can get uh, insurance that involves like a communicable disease, is what it's called, um, a virus thing. Nobody can get that right now. But um, no, they, that was just a, a deal they did. Um, the body armor deal was done like back in March and just never got announced. Um, the Chubb, the Chubb insurance deal though, that, that got done during the pandemic. So that's a good sign. It's a, it's a good, um, it's a good sponsorship for both parties because, you know, it kind of speaks to, uh, insurance is kind of a big deal this year. And then Chubb is a international brand. Um, they sponsor the Australian open. And so it's good, it's good business for them. Um, you know, especially on a, event that's going to be so international this year, you know, with nobody able to actually physically be there. Um, you know, I think it's a good deal for everybody in that regard. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you, again, the U.S. Open looking for any stream of revenue possible, yeah. and that gets us to our larger conversation, which is you wrote, in my opinion, again, an exceptional piece uh, discussing the entanglement between, you know, uh, gambling streams and tennis, and that, you know, what exhibitions taught us, we saw multiple uh, events sponsored by DraftKings, the most notable one, John Isner's event in Atlanta, but of course, the Match Play 120 series and others uh, entangled with DraftKings. Kings. I should also say, full disclosure, this podcast, uh, our Crack Rackets team, also uh, sponsored by DraftKings. So it's something we know well here. And, you know, superficially, I've always said this that I read it. I can't remember the exact piece, but that tennis is the second most gambled on sport in the world. And I believe reading in your article, it's the fourth most on the DraftKings sportbook. But certainly, if you are a fan of tennis, you understand its longtime entanglement with the world of gambling. You understand that challenger streams all of us enjoy things like livestream.com backslash ATP all of these little minute details even you could argue lots of uh, the ITF circuit is funded by the sport it gets from these gambling streams who are looking to create these live streams looking to have people you know lock in on these matches so that they can generate revenue from these matches there is a long history to the entanglement of you know gambling entities and tennis and can you talk a little bit about that you know set the scene for our listeners yeah for sure so tennis is a natural sport for gambling because three main reasons uh for one it's global it's like happening everywhere um and the season uh there's only what one month of the year that they're not playing pro tennis somewhere uh december Mm -hmm. december so so it's everywhere it's on all the time it's happening all the time there's like numerous levels um i mean you got a you basically got a tennis tournament going on in a normal year at all times, pretty much from, uh, from, sorry, from January to November. So there is a, uh, glut of content, you know, of, of, uh, of events to gamble on. Um, and then the third reason is, uh, this one was interesting. I, I didn't know about this until I worked on this story, but, um, sports betting really likes tennis because there is a, uh, definite outcome every like 30 seconds. So somebody's going to score every 30 seconds and roughly, and there's a big movement right now in sports betting, uh, in game betting. So where let's say like if you were watching an NBA game, you would bet who's going to win this quarter, who's going to score the most points this quarter, or you would bet, um, uh, like in soccer, um, first, uh, first to score or, you know, um, something like that, uh, uh, in NFL, you could you could say, you know, like, who's going to have the most receiving yards on this drive? And, and so it's these little – you used to think of betting kind of as like, okay, this team will win or this team will win or this team will win by this much, you know, things like that. It's really become more um, in-game because this is – sports betting loves this because it keeps the viewer really, like, engaged, um, the gambler really engaged. Sports organizations, sports properties love this because it keeps the viewer engaged as well. So it, it kind of um, creates a game within the game, you know, while you're watching it throughout that's going to keep you um, motivated to pay attention. And so tennis is, tennis is perfect for that because you can, you can bet point by point, you can bet game by game, you can bet set by set, or you can bet, you know, on the match. I mean, you could bet any number of things because of the way it's like really um, – fragmented you know it's like really even evenly cut up into little tiny little bits uh that you can 
make wagers on. And so that's why tennis is so popular worldwide. Um, and then, you know, the, the issue, the, the reason this is, this was even a story is, you know, you had um, a, I, I don't know what to call it. I don't know if a, a glut of match fixing is the right word, but the, you had definite match fixing issues uh, in the last decade. Um, definitely around, you know, 2006 to like 15 or so. And, and it's still ongoing, but that there was like a big spike. And so the tennis uh, governing bodies, you know, the alphabet soup came up with um, uh, this report uh, I can't remember the, it was IPR or IRP or something like that, but it was basically a report uh, that was put together that assessed some of the ways that they could fix uh, or at least, you know, alleviate this problem um, with gambling. And one of the uh, suggestions was that the ATP would do a moratorium on gambling sponsorships for tournaments. Uh, and that started in 2018. And the moratorium said that they could, not renew deals that they had or sign new deals. Uh, and so um, the WTA never had never had a moratorium. They have pretty strict rules, but you could still have a gambling sponsorship if you're a tournament. Um, another rule that they came up with recently was to stop the sale of data rights um, at the lowest level of the ITF. And so data rights are basically you're taking the scoring, um, all of, you know the official scoring, from the ITF or the ATP or the WTA and a company is paying the tour or the ITF money to get access to that official data, which they then sell all over the world to sports betting books. And so um, data rights become a very lucrative uh, source of revenue for uh, tennis. And that kind of brings us around to another aspect of this story, why it's a bit timely. And that's because this summer, you had all of pro tennis wiped out. And so there was no tennis. And so you started to see, you know, exhibitions and little tours kind of pop up. And some of the major sponsors of these events were either sports books, you know, betting companies themselves, or the data rights, uh, the companies that were buying the data rights, so data companies. And so essentially, uh, in a lot of cases, gambling kind of propped up pro tennis this summer while the tours were suspended. Um, and the example that I used was the event that Isner played in the all all American team cup in Atlanta. This was organized by Eddie Gonzalez, who is the tournament director for the truest Atlanta open, which is a ATP 250 event. And he, that, that, uh, all American cup was sponsored by DraftKings and they specifically wanted to do that a, because DraftKings gave them money and they wouldn't have been able to have the event otherwise but also to show uh and he talked with the eddie gonzalez talked with the atp he talked with the tennis integrity unit which is this body that uh is funded by the the major governing bodies and you know investigates match fixing and, and other corruption in the game he talked with both of them and you know they were aware that he was doing it and he said he wanted to have this event to show that you could have a gambling sponsor and it didn't automatically mean that, you know, your tournament was going to be corrupted or, um, you know, uh, bought off by uh, some shady bookie somewhere. So that's the reason that I wrote the story was um, after having this event that went well, um, you know, and, and kind of being able to point to all these examples where gambling really lifted tennis this summer and kept it afloat. 
you know, there is a lot of interest among ATP tournament directors and others involved in tennis, you know, agents and other organizers to approach the ATP and, and see um, later in the year if they will reconsider the moratorium and end it. Um, they think that the Tennis Integrity Unit and the data companies, which have their own integrity monitoring services, you know, they think all of that together puts has put the sport in a much safer, um, you know, much less corrupt, um, you know, setting than it was previously uh, and that, you know, gambling sponsorships should be allowed, um, which would could be especially helpful, you know, as, as uh, the economy has been hit and, you know, there's probably going to be certain um, sectors of tennis sponsorship that pull some money back. So yeah. that's kind of the gist. That's why I wrote the story, you know, right now. Yeah, no, and again, it was really well written, and I appreciate that sort of background. Um, of course, and then people what might remember this from about a year ago, there were rumors that, what was it, IMG Arena, which I think is their sports gambling arm of the IMG agency and the ATP Tour, were coming to something like a 10-year billion-dollar deal uh, on the exclusive betting rights uh, with IMG and trying to figure out how that would work, and obviously uh, the revenue stream available through uh sports gambling is immense and you know I, I do want to talk about it from a fan perspective do they think that will help the you know the ATP the WTA if they just double down on it if they just admit it embrace it will that help them from a marketing perspective but I want to talk about just you know the revenue demands and and the fact that we are in the midst of a global pandemic you know Tens of ATP and WTA tournaments have been canceled, and revenue streams for all of the events that are being played are limited, are narrowed, as you mentioned. And so the concept of lifting this moratorium, of just embracing sports gambling moving forward, and uh, by the way, we'll talk about it from a player perspective in a little bit as well, but just from the tournament perspective, how much of this is just out of financial necessity, out of the fact that, look, tennis isn't flush with TV cash the way other sports are are they need this sort of deal to survive yeah there's a so there's a couple aspects of this and that's a that's a good question because that's like really the crux of the matter i mean so mm -hmm. first off um a source told me that when they put the moratorium in into place there were there were um it was a lot of european tournaments that had gambling um, sponsorships and source told me that there were multiple six-figure uh deals that were ended you know, by the moratorium. And so if uh, you look at a 250 tournament, because the list that we had, we actually ran a list in 2018. I'll try to find it here while I'm talking to you. Um, that had the had the list of tournaments that had um, uh, gambling sponsorships. There were, you know, several 250s on there. And so the 250 level tournaments average profit annually is about six figures. So, I mean, that that's mm -hmm. the difference between breaking even and, and actually doing okay. So, that's that's significant i mean it, and, and also i want to say too like i didn't write this story as an advocate you know for gambling or for mm -hmm. this to happen just to lay out why these people are saying that you know i i don't really have strong feelings on it either way but i definitely can see why they're arguing this another so okay think about that so the lower level and and the people that are pushing this like for example eddie gonzalez's tournament um in atlanta and then he works for gf sports which is a bigger company and they also own the new york open so there's two 250 tournaments that could probably really benefit from this, especially since Eddie already has a relationship with DraftKings. Um, another person I talked to who was delightful and would be somebody that would be really fun to hang out with, I would guess, is 
Raul Zurutuza, and I might have said his name wrong, but um, he's uh, works for um, the company that uh, owns the um, Los Cabos and Acapulco tournaments, um, both you know smaller tournaments, and and uh, he told me that you know they have a deal lined up for whenever the moratorium is ended, and it's with this company, Mexican betting company called Cayente, um, that used to sponsor their tournaments and you know, that they could easily get back into a deal with. And so, you know, the groundswell is from lower levels, but Raul told me that, uh, you know, it's tournament directors at all levels are interested and, and you know, cool with this. Um, I even got a letter the other day uh, from somebody who thought the story was interesting and, and reached out to me and sent me something that uh, the USTA had sent a letter to um, Senator Chuck Schumer in 2018, and they were voicing their support for, um, you know, what was going on in the U.S. at that point and still is uh, the increasing legalization of gambling. So mm-hmm. so uh, I didn't even talk to the USDA for this story, but I know that they were um, they were open to, you know, this being done as long as it was done, you know, carefully and, and you know, with with um, integrity controls, you know, co- corruption monitoring in place. You know, they were they were definitely good with it. So um, all levels of tournament uh, directors and events are, are into this, are interested in this. Um, and then you've got to consider too, the, uh, the issue where, okay, some of the major sponsors of, of tennis are kind of like these lifestyle, um, jet setting travel related companies. So you've got hotels and like, for example, Emirates, you know, major sponsor of the ATP tour, uh, the biggest sponsor actually, um, you know, the, you can understand that these companies are are taking a major financial hit right now. That doesn't automatically mean that all of them are going to pull back money, but it makes it like not surprising if they decided to do that, especially at lower levels. If you have, um, if you were like say a, a two fifty in Austria and you had a local hotel partner, I mean, you could see where it would be reasonable that that company would have to pull out you know, uh, for the next few years while things bounce back. Uh, and so that, that's going to be something that happens at every level of the sport. I mean, you may be, you know, I, I wouldn't expect to see Emirates back out of tennis right away, if at all, but you know, it's these lower, lower level, you know, smaller local hotel deals that will be a little bit tougher in the coming years. Um, especially as, you know, we settle into like the real impacts of the, uh, financially of the pandemic. Um, and so, here comes gambling on its, you know, white horse with its shiny sword to save the day. I mean, this is an industry that is doing fine, like that is doing really well. Um, really is almost, sadly, it's almost recession proof. I mean, it doesn't really seem to be greatly impacted by, by normal economic situations. Uh, for example, all of the you know, tennis for all of the sports that were canceled over the summer, you know, for late spring and summer. I mean, we had a story in our magazine the other week about how table tennis picked up the slack. Table tennis was the one of the most bet on sports in the world for like four months. So people that want to gamble will find something to gamble on. And sports betting uh, companies and sports books will find those things for them. So really, it's an industry that is doing well, that's healthy. Uh, financially. And I think that's another aspect of it that, um, you know, these tournament directors point to like, this is a, this is a, uh, 
industry that is healthy and and in good shape that we need to be aligned with. Um, okay, so here's I found this list. So um, you've got mm -hmm. like yeah, Gestad, Bestad, Stockholm, Sofia, Mercedes Cup, um, Generali Open, Brisbane International. So you know there's some smaller tournaments on there. Australian Open had a um, deal with William Hill, which is a major sports book. Um, yeah, Australian Open was the biggest for sure. But yeah, most of these tournaments were smaller tournaments. So you can see where um, where this would have definitely had a had a big impact on uh, on these events that lost these major, um, major, major uh, gambling deals. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think you got a really good quote from Sam Duvall, uh, obviously uh, agent for Top Notch Management, and he said, you know, all these various events referring to these exhibitions have been going on, have largely been driven by these data companies. It's maybe not public facing, but it's the mechanism which has been able to continue to run to support a lot of players. And I think that's worth, again, re uh, uh, reinforcing this idea that, look, these streams help fund. We all love watching channels or circuit events we all love watching futures events we've had so many conversations how can we you know create better exposure for these players at the lower levels how can we get it to a point where tennis is in a better state financially to where those players ranked outside of the top 100 can receive better financial uh just uh I guess revenue just receive better you know make a better living and it's simply there has to be more money in the sport for that to happen and without advocating that gambling is the way to turn for tennis to make money it's undeniable I think that this is a revenue stream that just has not been fully tapped by tennis and I mean We've seen other sports now, particularly as you mentioned with here in America, uh, the stance on legal, uh, legalizing gambling being soft and people are more and more in favor of it. Various states have already begun to legalize it. Uh, it just feels there will be an inevitable entanglement between the two and the question which always comes back to is, well, how do you prevent corruption? Because there are so many you know, public incidences of corruption if you look throughout uh, tennis's history, obviously there were two Egyptian players, the Hassam brothers. They have both been banned for life for match fixing. By the way, there's a dirty secret. And I spent one of the days in the five months uh, without tennis. You know, we were all looking for little tennis things to deep dive on. Go look up Nikolai Davidenko fixed match. And you're going to go on an hour long bender where you're just going to click article after hour, article after article. And the point is, you know, it happens. You hear stories. I don't want to talk about, I'm not going to name any names, but I know some someone who threw a match. It was a doubles match. It was at a higher level than you think. And the person threw it because they were offered enough money to throw it. And they were like, yeah, why would I not throw this doubles match? You just, it just happens. There are too many events, too many places across the world for the TIU to monitor everything. And you mentioned this in your article, the tennis, the TIU, the tennis integrity unit, their funding, I believe, has tripled over these past couple of years as they continue to try and weed out all of these examples of corruption as they try to make it easier and more feasible for the relationship and partnership between the sport of tennis and these gambling entities to exist. Um, but from a player perspective, you know, it, 
do you think players would embrace that? I, I can't imagine they wouldn't if the revenue uh, just meant if it was going to be a bigger pie for everyone, right? If there's more revenue available, I don't know why they wouldn't embrace that. But would you expect there to be any pushback from individual players? And, you know, the follow-up to that, obviously, is if tennis as a, as a business is going to embrace these gambling entities, will they allow players to do the same? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a natural next question that I talked to Sam Duvall about. He's um, Isner's agent. And I didn't really get into it in the story because I ran out of – I had space constraints. But um, so I asked Sam that, you know, because that seems naturally more sketchy than the events. And so his first point was, A, most of the match fixing and sketchiness is happening at the lowest level. Um like, eh, hold on. I had a, well, if you've got the story up, you can find where I wrote, you know, the, it's what, 71% of sketchy matches that got flagged up last year were uh, at the world, t- world tennis tour level of the ITF. Yeah. So, 70, by the and, way, hey, great shot too. Great memory. 71% is exactly what it says. Yeah. And, but for um, the Grand Slams, WTA and ATP, it was only uh, eight. You know, so the ATP Challenger level had had some, and I think maybe the WTA 125 level. But for the for the major levels of tennis, it was eight of 130 something matches or something like that. I I wish I had this in front of me. It just would take a while to find it. But um, you know, the, this isn't really happening very often at the highest level. It's too easy to notice. Too many people watching, and so that's one aspect of it. I mean, you, you know, the the issue would be at the lower level um, for those players. And Sam Duvall made the like very pertinent point. He was like, sponsors are not dealing with players at the lower level. Any kind of sponsor is not going to sponsor a player that's on the world tennis tour. That's ranked 970th in the world. Like that's not a sponsorship that's going to benefit them. So the, the sponsorships are really going to be for ATP and WTA players. And you know Kyle Ross, who is uh, a um, works same essentially the same company as Sam Duvall. Kyle mm-hmm. Ross put on the the Grand Slam 120 series this summer. Um, mm-hmm. He had a great quote about this that didn't get in the story, but I wanted to make sure I use it. He said, "Just because somebody is sponsored by a betting company makes them a match fixer." He said, "If I'm sponsored by Moe and a champagne sponsorship, that doesn't make me an alcoholic." I thought that was like a really good point. So I think it'll be harder for the ATP and WTA and, and others to get behind players being sponsored, but there's really not a great reason. As long as there's integrity monitoring, there's really not a great reason to allow it, especially at the higher levels because, and, and Sam said, he was like, I don't even think there needs to be a ban on lower level players having these sponsorships because they're not going to get them. I mean, it's it's not going to be worth uh, the it's not going to be worth the money for the like minute exposure that you would gain from sponsoring a player that's ranked, you know, eleven hundredth in the world or whatever. So, I thought that was like a good point. I mean, because that that was where I thought, okay, this might be like difficult for people to get behind. But I mean, their arguments were were pretty solid. I thought, you know, and it could be even be. Um, you know, wearing pat, uh, having patches on your shirt or, or whatever. But I mean, and so 
it kind of it also speaks to though and this is a key part of this story is um it's almost hypocrisy from these major tennis entities to sell their data rights for so much money and i actually was was corrected by img a day after this story came out that they have never they have never finished that deal with the atp the billion dollar Mm -hmm. deal so i removed that from the story and, and you know in full transparency um got that from sport business and that has not been that deal has never been finished so i should have followed up on that but i didn't but anyway it's 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 fair to assume that whenever they do a deal with img it's going to be enormous um and so these guys point out the hypocrisy of these tours and itf taking boatloads of cash from data companies that then sell the data rights to sports betting companies, which enables gambling on tennis. So how do, how do you justify that and then not allow tennis tournaments to have sponsorships, especially when tennis tournaments are already getting a cut of the data rights deal? So they are effectively already benefiting from gambling sponsorship. Uh, and then also the players who, you know, have have immense, um, have uh, considerable eyeballs watching them and and making sure their matches aren't sketchy um and and you know i i understand that it's uh, a sport that can be thrown more easily than any other sport especially when you talk about in match betting where a guy decides okay i just need to lose this fourth game of this third set that's very difficult to 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 detect all the same it's it's happening already all around gambling is so intertwined with tennis that it seems weird that they wouldn't consider making the money off of it that is already essentially connected to the sport i I just think it's something that i don't know that you like go all in and, and you know immediately get rid of all rules but it just seems like something that is worth considering because these are pretty strong arguments that are being made um you know for players and tournaments to benefit from this money as well Mm-hmm. And in the aftermath of your article, of people who follow tennis Twitter closely, there was a conversation. I think uh, Sven Grunfeld retweeted it, and then her, him, Renee Stubbs, a couple of other were advocating how hypocritical it would be, as you mentioned, for tournaments to be able to benefit from this relationship, but not players. And I, I, I want to say I don't disagree with anything you said. Here would be my pushback, though. If the lower levels of the game are corrupted, and by the way, that's a big assumption. Just because a tournament has a relationship with a gambling site, as you mentioned, just because uh, gambling and tennis now are mutually beneficial, that doesn't mean people are going to be throwing every match. All of these players competing in pro tennis, you would imagine, are being pros because they want to succeed at the highest levels, because they want to reach the top 100. They want to, you know, again, make the most of their careers. But the problem is... You know, there have been many examples, again, uh, many is a stretch, but there have been examples of match fixing at the lower levels and to advance to the top 100 in professional tennis, to advance to ATP 250s, to advance to WTA internationals, you first have to ascend through the, you know, the ITF events. You have to get through the 10Ks, the 25Ks, the 50Ks, work your way up through challengers, finally get into that first ATP main draw. And if that process is corrupted, 
are you know how does that influence tennis moving forward how does that influence the lower levels will we see you know a diminished product will it just how again it, it is certain to hurt the sport if you have players tanking matches at the futures level that's productive for no one it's just you know we're sinking resources at that point just so all of these gambling entities can make money off of it is that a worthwhile relationship for tennis at that point that would be the pushback right is that a corrupted lower level inevitably influences the level of the game yeah i mean and i think there's a lot there's so that's like a big assumption a yeah yeah it is there's a there's a lot there's a lot of changes going on at the lower level i mean some if you look at the rankings of some of the players that you know had um that got suspensions or got banned in the last few years. Um, there was mm-hmm. actually the, when I looked at the 2019 um, tennis integrity, you know, annual report, there was one player that had reached a career high of 67 that was banned. Can't remember his name. All the rest of them were like 970, 1300, you know, like these, and this kind of to me gets back to like, who's a professional, <laughs> you know I mean? And, and so, I know that's a whole nother debate, you know, of, of, of how many people are allowed to participate in the ITF. But I mean, they're, they're, you know, some of these players are not going anywhere. And so I think, you know, to say that it would really impact young players uh, that are, that have a future, I don't think any of them are really going to be interested in throwing matches because the potential for, future earnings is, is far greater. So I, it's really those people that I think are just hanging out down there, you know, like it's either, either, uh, yeah, I mean, they just don't have a, much of a future in the sport. So, I mean, another thing you could do is, 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 uh, because I think that the, the integrity monitoring, the corruption monitoring is, is key. I mean, you could install some sort of like, almost like a tax on gambling sponsorships where, you know, 5% or something like that had to go into this pool that was contributed to the TIU so they could hire more people. I mean, there, there's ways you can do it to where the tournament still would get, you know, an enormous benefit from it, but also can be contributing to maintaining the integrity of the sport. And, you know, also, I mean, the, the gambling companies, they don't want to be associated with match fixing. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're all in on making sure the, um, corruption stays out of the game, um, and likewise for the the data companies. I mean, I think they, I think nobody wants a match fixing scandal. That really does not benefit anybody. So there, that's why you see data companies like Sport Radar and Genius Sport and IMG Arena that have these um, integrity units. I mean, the the Sport Radar integrity unit is stout. I mean, considering you know, it's it's worldwide and it's um, hundreds of people. You know, so. I think you can work and create this system that, that involves the tours, the tennis integrity unit, um, and, and also the data companies where, and it, and maybe even the, the bet, the sports books and the, and the betting companies that really creates a situation where tennis can just happen because what they really need to, to bet is for tennis to happen. So you just need, you just need the tour to flow. You don't want drama. You don't want a bunch of match fixing and, and sketchiness and, and, you know, hurting the, uh, gambling is already a, 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 a pursuit that it kind of has a reputational, you know, difficulties. So, I mean, they, they're not trying to add to that, especially at a time in the United States where, uh, you know, they're on the cusp of, of really 
hitting widespread legalization. I mean, they don't, they don't want to do anything to mess that up. So I just think there's more incentive there to be a clean game, but that doesn't mean that there's not going to be people that, you know, are, are, are throwing matches or throwing points or whatever. Um, and so I just think you got to keep working on beefing it up, you know, and that's what all the proponents of ending the moratorium, you know, don't think that you need to get rid of any of the TIU or the, um, the, the match monitoring or any of that, you know, if anything, that it needs to be improved even more because they said that's the reason why it should be reconsidered at this time is because it is succeeding. It's, it, it is working. And for sure matches slip through the crack. I mean, there's too much tennis going on, but you know, I, I think that it's, it's really the, a lot harder to do now um, than it had been, you know, previously before, the TIU really got beefed up and before these data companies um, really bought into, um, you know, contributing to the effort. No, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, again, the flip side is if there is already a relationship, does it become that much easier to convince kid who's maybe 16 17 18 years old comes from a federation that doesn't have the resources of a usta of a tennis australia of an lta and you know he says hey well i'm only going to do it once but it's i'm going to make myself a nice chunk of money and it's going to fund the rest of my year and does it become easier to do that but i think to everything you just said why that incentive still isn't there. You know, players don't want to be, or sports gambling entities don't want to be associated with match fixing. And, you know, players don't want to be associated with match fixing. All of the incentives that already exist to not fix matches would still exist. And if anything, be even more closely scrutinized because with the additional revenue, you imagine would come even more stringent regulations and more resources to enforce those regulations. So I agree. And, without advocating or although I I will say I guess I can't advocate because I'm in the host position I see no problem yeah. with it uh, there yeah. like there is no downside you are tapping a revenue stream in a time when revenue streams for all for all sports are unknown it's just less yeah. and less certain where they're going yeah. to come from when are we going to get fans back in stands so to me there the downside to this is so because regulations already exist in place because there is this structure that can just be reinforced the downside is so much is, is minimal enough to where it just it seems like this relationship is inevitable also one other aspect and i thought this was interesting from eddie gonzalez was especially with DraftKings. so the U.S. right now is not a tennis hotspot. You know, you can, mm -hmm. you can, again, this is another like two hour podcast subject for you, I'm <laughs> sure. But it's just, it's not a tennis hotspot right now. And so um, betting companies are really excited about tennis with the United States because it is uh, in the U.S. in in-game betting is very popular. Betting is becoming more common, more legal. Um, and so they see like a huge market in the United States. The other aspect, though, is like fantasy. Um, fantasy sports is enormous for, um, you know, the, the big five leagues in the U.S. Um, and, and that's something that tennis could easily uh, swing together with DraftKings or, some, or FanDuel or whoever. Um, tournament by tournament, you know, you pick your, pick your little team or whatever. Um, I mean, it would be so perfect for like world team tennis or whatever, um, you know, any, any event like that. Um, and, and you pick your little team and, and – um, you know, play, play for money. And think of, I mean, think of the people that would be exposed to the sport who don't see it on TV, who don't have a favorite American male player because no offense to all of them, but there just isn't really a, a hot one, you know, right now. Um, 
and and think of the people that could be exposed to the sport because of this who who end up learning um you know the difference between the belarusians and the ukrainians or whatever you know that, that start to learn some of these like players that are you know ranked in the 50s um and and tracking them and following them because they had them on their fantasy team for kitzbühel or whatever you know so i think that's another aspect is is the exposure that you can get um from some of these things you can create some really cool fan engagement stuff with with um kind of fantasy sports um and i think that's something that should definitely be considered by tennis you know that is a sport that um has so many like cool personalities coming coming up right now you know young people that are interesting that are social media um, natives um i think you could really you know take advantage of that and, and this would be more exposure to people that are not going to find tennis on tv um on their own yeah no i i mean you're absolutely right in that it's another topic because we could talk in for hours if there was some sort of greater incentive to gamble if people could get invested in it you're right you just look at the numbers gambling in sport gambling is on the rise throughout the country because it is again being legalized in so many different states and if tennis embraced that would it find a bigger uh, area of support here in the United States because as we said at the beginning tennis is one of those only sports that is played you know 24 7 365 days a year in multiple countries all you know through Throughout the course of the year, except for really three weeks in December, although by the time you hit the end of December, events are starting up again. And so you're absolutely right. The fact that it can be point by point, set by set, over-unders, line, you know, match spreads, all these different uh, elements. How many, how many uh, aces is Serena going to hit in this match? You know, I mean, there's, it's like endless. Yeah. Oh yeah. You can go on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. And so I agree. It just feels like an inevitable tanglement, uh, entanglement between the two and I, you know, as a tennis fan, I will say I'm excited to see what happens as a result of that partnership because, yes, off of the court, it certainly uh, feels intriguing, right? It's certain, uh, you know, it's certainly just it's a topic that draws eyeballs. It's something that mm-hmm. it, it's a big it, from a the a financial aspect of tennis. It really is one of the last revenue streams that remains untapped or fully untapped. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I mean, and and it's. For sure, there are some moral and ethical, you know, gray areas around gambling. But I mean, I wouldn't say as directly bad as you know, tobacco or maybe even alcohol, which every tournament has an alcohol sponsor. So, um, you know, I I just um, went into this with an open mind, and I just don't really see where there's much of an argument against it. I just think that you would want to continue to beef up the monitoring of the sports integrity and you would want to do that anyway that shouldn't be specific to this regardless you know so i mean i think um what you can do is just use the money you know for example like the lottery in the united states generally goes to education funds i mean so take the money from something that not everybody agrees with and put it to something that's good so take the money from some money from gambling sponsorships and kick it into a pool of money that goes to um the TIU, you know, so I think, I think there's easily ways to do it. And I think there's definitely going to be um, interest in that this year. And I'm, you know, merely certain that the issue will be raised uh, whenever the ATP has a big meeting again, um, you know, with, with tournament directors. Mm-hmm. 
No, I mean, yeah, you nailed it. And again, I appreciate you writing this story in general because it is a topic right now that is so fascinating. Where is the money going to come for professional tennis, particularly as events continue to be compromised uh, by uh, this global pandemic? The fact that we're not going to see full crowds, that concession uh, sales, all of these things, particularly for lower level events, it's going to crush them. And so, you know, this is one's potential offset for those losses in revenues and it's a really interesting thing for tennis because they can't afford right now to just carte blanche say no to any idea they have to get creative they have to be open-minded and I think again what this article reflects is that the organizational structures the powers that be the alphabet soup as you like to call them uh, they are starting to come around uh, or they are coming to that realization and they are doing all they can to again get through these uh, tough financial times so uh, yeah again Brett, excellent piece of reporting for everyone who wants to go read this story. It is called Tennis Events Make Big Revenue Bet. Exhibition Sportsbooks Use Pandemic Break to Give Wagering a New Try. Everyone can read it at sportsbusinessdaily.com. And in general, Brett, when they want to read more of your topics, in case there are any new deals coming out or any pieces you have in the work, where can they read everything of yours? Yeah, Twitter. Um, <laughs> at Brett just one t. So that's B-R-E-T-J-U-S-T, number one, T. Um, And I post all my stuff there. We have a paywall, you know, so not all of our stories are open. This one is open, and I would, you know, love to hear what people think about it. I think it's a really interesting and fascinating topic. I mean, I'll leave you with, like, one last thought. Consider this. So the, the calendar turns to 2021, and the coronavirus has not magically disappeared. It's really likely that next spring there's going to be tournaments played with no fans somewhere. So imagine if if a tournament could add, you know, a hundred fifty thousand dollar sponsorship with a betting company um, that allows them to have a tournament with no fans, safely have the tournament, not have to cancel it though because they got revenue coming in. I mean that that could be that could be a game changer for a lot of tournaments. Um, so that's that would be probably the best case scenario that could come out of something like this. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree with you. And then you start to think, well, can these tournaments develop on-site apps where you're watching the match and you can just hit the wager right on in your seat and you can be you know, interacting during the match? That would certainly be uh, a juicy part of the fan experience. There are just a lot of different uh, ways, I agree, a different, you know, that this uh, relationship could go. And so it's, it's a very, very interesting subject. And yeah, you talked about it. You know, is it a, a bit suspect in terms of the morality of the relationship? relationship well guess what we're big boy you know we're big boys and girls where it's tw- yeah. it's the 21st century these it's happening anyway yeah, yeah exactly so yeah. A, a, to a certain point it's just naive to assume this relationship right. can be put off any longer but yeah it's a really well-written piece as is everything you do so i highly recommend everyone go read it brett thank you as always for taking the time i saw you know another tweet i i also noticed my ongoing rivalry with chris otto for your attention <laughs> it, it, it continues to exist and so Chris and I can beef that out separately, but it's always great to get yeah. the chance to chat with you. And I, you know, I can't let you get off the podcast without asking, how is your young child holding up? Are we teething? Teething. <laughs> yes. She's home today from daycare because she's having a tough time with it. it uh, so it, I don't know if it's connected, but she's got a little bit of a cold. And um, it's really the most pitiful thing I've ever seen in my life when she tries to eat and she can't breathe through her nose. <laughs> And she can't breathe through her mouth because she's got the bottle in her mouth and she's just like, 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's pathetic, and I feel bad for her. But um, no, she's she's okay. She's hanging in there, and uh, we are likewise. Thank. I appreciate you asking. Oh, of course, that is great to hear. Well, again, I hope you and your family stay safe and healthy. I hope you, as, long, as well as all of our fans, obviously, enjoy some tennis because we finally get to see our favorite pros on site. Actually, let's end with that question. Give me your prohibitive U.S. Open men's and women's singles champions. Oh, God. I'd have to even look at the field. I will go <laughs> with an, Ameri- an American woman will win. Um, okay. I don't know who. <laughs> I don't know. I feel good about Sloan. She likes U.S. Open, and uh, <laughs> she played. You know, she got to play a bunch of tennis in July. I'll go with mm-hmm. Sloan. Um, right. On the men's side, oh man, I don't know. Novak, who's undefeated <laughs> this year, um, yeah. and maybe maybe would love to like just really stick a middle finger up to everybody, you know, by <laughs> dominating this tournament. So I'll go with those two. Okay. Well, the Novak pick, I, no one can complain about the Sloan pick. You will be the only person within the entire industry to pick Sloan. Yeah. Stevens. Yeah. So I yeah, love coming that. Out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, she, go she, against she, the grain. She's had a, she didn't have a great start to 2020 and I don't, I don't know that 2019 was a lot better, but I, I just feel like uh, maybe, maybe she's in a good frame of mind. I don't know. No, I, I love it. No, the pick is locked in. That's beautiful. Well, I also you... am not completely sure who's in the field at this point. So <laughs> yeah. I know for a fact that she had a negative test, so she is playing. Yeah. <laughs> no, this will get us full circle. All I'll say is don't take that pick to DraftKings. You'll get really good odds. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, good, but, good thought. Yeah. Yes, good but advice. on that note, uh, Brett, again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Hope you and your family stay safe and healthy, and obviously look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks, man. Yep, take it easy. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with sports business journalist Brett McCormick. By the way, shout out to Brett for predicting Sloan Stevens to take the 2020 U.S. Open. For those of you who are curious, Sloan Stevens, and again, we if you've watched tennis closely, she's not been playing her best tennis over these past 18 months, plus 6,600 odds to win the U.S. Open. So as we say here, hey, Great shot to you, Brett, for taking for making that selection. That's a bold one, folks. Uh, there is no denying that. But, of course, a huge thank you to him for taking the time to chat with us. No one has a better uh, understanding of the pulse, you know, finger on the pulse of what's going on on the financial side of the tennis world. So it's always great to get to chat with Brett. And please go support the work he is doing at Sports Business Journal. As we all know, you know, sports journal journalism in general, sports journalism, excuse me, journalism in general uh, matters now. Now, more than ever. So if you can, please go support our fellow exceptional journalists. I say our fellow. Go accept, uh, Go support those exceptional journalists out there uh, because they deserve your support. And Brett is certainly in that qualification of journalist. Uh, but again, we know what you are all thinking right now. New York, what's going on? What are your thoughts? What are, What should we expect, Alex, preview-wise? Cincinnati, and, or Cincinnati, excuse me, Western and Southern, followed by the U.S. Open. Who's going to win? What advantages can we get? So we can take advantage of our knowledge on DraftKings. Well, rest assured, folks, we are here at Cracked Rackets, are ready to go full systems ahead at New York. Bunch of content in the queue already. We're excited to bring that to all of you uh, because, of course, all of us have been awaiting uh, both having both the ATP and WTA back in our lives, and we are going to get it in spades over these next three weeks in New York. So if you're not already, like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, the mini break podcast, Cracked Interviews 
podcast so you don't miss any of the action. Of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. You're going to get to see us do a lot of cool things on video. And you're going to want to read the website as well, CrackRackets.com, because we're going to be covering it across multiple platforms. You don't want to miss out on any of that content. And to get the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Follow us at Cracked Rackets. You want to DM me directly. You have some recommendations for us, whatever it may be. Feel free to shoot me a DM at Great Shot Pod. And, you know, shout out as always to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f of an ending job they do day in, day out. They are always so, uh, you know, their hard work is what makes us able to do so many cool things across so many different platforms. So shout out to the both of them. Shout out to our friends at Midwest Sports. By the way, I know they don't. Don't sponsor this podcast, but you want to go get in on that Western and Southern Open giveaway. You want to give yourself a chance to win four free tickets to the 2021 event or one of the, what, four rackets they're giving away throughout the week. Just go get involved in that. Go check out more details on their website, MidwestSports.com. Of course, on today's mini break, you can hear my conversation with Midwest Sports Dave Limke as well to learn more about all of that. Uh, But with that being said, for our incredible guest today, Sports Business Journal's Brett McCormick. Our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at DraftKings, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. Hey, great shot, and we will see you all next week. It's U.S. Open Western Southern time, baby! Woo!